Hello, and welcome to the Cosmic Tape Music Club podcast. Hello. This month, we are covering Sun Ra. We are diving deep into the cosmos, into the myth, and finding out all that we can about his story and why he made the music he made and the people that he worked with in the orchestra that he put together and carried with him for over 40 years. And his synthesizers and keyboards and crazy electronic experiments. Yes, he um, really embodies the spirit of our Cosmic Tape Music Club in terms of his philosophies and how he approached making music. Um, and we had to dig, but we did find some examples of him using tape delay and synthesizers, obviously, and experimental approaches to sound. So I'm really excited to share what we've been learning. And recording to cassette. Lots of recording to cassette. I mean, he's of his time. So tape is always going to be a part of his story and his methods because that's what was being used at the time the height of his career, tape was king. So it's no surprise that it's in the mix. Certainly. So I always like to start with a little background, give a little bio um, of what we've learned, you know, where he comes from, what makes him the myth person that he was. Um, He did say he wasn't human, he was a myth. I don't know if he ever specifically said that he was an alien. He said he was from Saturn. But that he was a myth, that he was here to tell the myth of who he He said that he wasn't was. human. He said what he wasn't. He didn't say what he was necessarily. Yeah, that's another thing about Sun Ra is that in a lot of the interviews that we watched or read, he intentionally gave different answers all the time or would evade the question and talk about, you know, some other philosophy that he was more interested in. But it was all part of maintaining this myth that... He is unknowable. He doesn't have a birth date. You know, where is he from? He's from Saturn. He's from outer space. He's traveled the cosmos. And you can see sort of a glint in his eye and the joy that he gets from kind of messing with people. You know, because there's these people going like, okay, when were you born? How long have you been doing this? When did you start? All these things. And he's just like, that's not what I'm here to talk about. He had <laughs> that's a bit not of, important yeah, at all. He had a bit of a sense of humor about it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I could just get that sense from him that he really enjoyed kind of throwing people off and telling them things that they weren't asking about and trying to lead them to the waters of new ideas. Yeah. He was sort of like, oh, you're trying to get hot on my trail. Not going to happen. Impossible. (laughs) So he was, you know, after his death, a biographer did kind of dig into his history to find out exactly you know, when he was born and what, where he was born and his family life and all these things. Personally, I like to maintain the myth that he wanted to maintain. So I don't want to say, you know, obviously it's very easy to find out his name and his birth date, but I don't want to say it on this podcast because he didn't want to be associated with those things. Takes a little bit of the fun out of it. And I don't want to perpetuate this, you know, historical data that he did not associate himself with, right? I'm in agreement with this philosophy. 
I don't know why it really strikes me. And maybe, you know, I feel that way about myself too, <laughs> a little bit. So I, I relate to that. Um, just protecting that, the myth that he, you know, we're all self-created beings. You know, we decide who we are and how we posture ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to respect that he, you know, put a lot of work into that. And it was more important to him that we know this myth character. That was really important to him that his message was heard. So I don't want to muddy the waters, even though that, you know, Google it. It's very easy to find. But I do think it's important that he was born very early in the 20th century and in Birmingham, Alabama. I do think that those pieces of information are important because of the stories that he tells about his myth. And I think it's important to know the context and the time frame. I was actually, I don't know why I didn't put this together, but I was surprised at how early he was born, you know? Me too. I was yeah. like, whoa. I was, I, I just That's started like a doing, different, that is like time traveling. I started doing the math immediately on like his age at certain parts of his career. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, to realize that the majority of his career like he really didn't start the orchestra until he was middle-aged mm-hmm. and he carried it for 40 years, you know? So that's a part of life where people usually consider that's you're looking at retirement. You're not looking to start your career then. So I always appreciate that because it's never too late. And I can certainly relate. <laughs> yeah. It gave us hope. We're like, we still got a lot of time to, you know, leave a legacy because he did, you know, make over a thousand recordings. Yeah. Individual recordings. That we know of. (laughs) I mean, there's plenty that he probably, you know, no one ever Not counting the demos. (laughs) Yeah. These are actual released singles, like pressed on his record label. We're getting way ahead of ourselves, but I will say um, that his mother was very supportive of his musical interests. And at a very young age, about 11 or 12, she bought him a piano and you know, that's kind of the end of the story. Really. He taught himself how to play. He taught himself how to read music. He would go to big band concerts and then come home and write down the arrangements of what he had heard. So, you know, he didn't have any foundation in that. I think, you know, his siblings and, you know, there was music in the family, but he didn't have formal training. He didn't have any teachers. He just played. And it was just natural to him, um, which blows my mind. But it does make sense because he truly is, he plays like no one else. You can find similarities to, you know, other jazz pianists of the time, but he's pulling from a lot of influences I mean, and I'd he's say making his own sound. He did most things like no one else. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, it sounds like he very quickly learned how to play a variety of styles of what was popular at the time so that he could play events. He could accompany people. Um, he was playing at clubs in a pretty young age. So he was playing all the styles of the time. And I think having that influence, having that kind of in your fingertips and having to do it for events, having to do it professionally in a way, you know, after a while, you know, you've got all of these different rhythms and approaches that, then you can form your own path, your own sound from that. But I think it's very hard to form your own sound if you don't actually know 
history context style. Right. Well, it, it, it came from his philosophy about what music was to him, which was a language, a universal language to communicate. And so he said that he had to learn all of those different styles in order to properly communicate to the people of planet Earth. Exactly. Very well said. Oh, this was so fun. Okay, so in Birmingham, there was a music store. It was called the Forbes... I don't know, piano? Forbes? Yes. It was called Forbes. Um, and mostly they had pianos. But he would go there, I think it said almost every day. Yeah, regularly. To, to play the pianos. Um, and, you know, he would play for like hours and people would crowd around and like he would take requests of songs. Um, and this is when he's, you know, in this like early preteen, teenage years. Uh, but what's so cool about this place is that they also had whatever like the latest technology was at the time. And we're talking the 30s. So they had a Celeste. That was, I think, the first sort of electric piano item mm -hmm. that they had at the store that existed that they were able to procure as something they could sell in the, a retail establishment. And... You know, he was able to get his hands on that before, you know, anybody else. And in 1939, when the Hammond solo locks came out, he bought that right away. So whatever that first, you know, whenever something came out, he was the first. He wanted to have it. He wanted to play with it. He wanted to make it part of his rig. He was quite the gearhead. Yeah, I feel like he might be the first gearhead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and if you look at that... Um... Hammond solo Vox, mm -hmm. you know, they say I, it was I'm like packed in, you know, kind of like, not quite like a kitchenette, but, you know, similar idea, you know, that it had everything, you know, right there. It was very portable. It was in a suitcase. It was kind of like a, um, almost like an accordion vibe, but an electric piano version. It of was that. like this little mini, mini keys. Mm -hmm. Mini keys. And he would put it, attach it underneath the keys of the piano and sort of extend the sound that way. He liked to have double keyboards, it seems. He yes. kind of always had a couple going on. We were saying this, we were watching a lot of performances. Um, he is like, and I don't know, first, second, fifth, whatever. But at least in the jazz world, he was the first to use electric pianos. And synthesizers, but he is like, seems like he's the first one to build like a synth circle around himself, like a keyboard. <laughs> yeah, the wall world, of synths. Like we're so used to seeing with like Tangerine Dream. Yeah, um, or Ricky Wakeman. <laughs> yes. I feel like, you know, he's one of the earliest examples of that. I don't think too many people were traveling with multiple keyboards in the 50s and early 60s. But you see him in this, I don't know what you call it, but. I, I need to come up with a nickname for it because I see it so often, but like the, the keyboard circle mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, in, incorporating electric pianos and synthesizers eventually once those became well, and possible. Like you said, he was, he was a pioneer. He would buy the thing immediately after it was released. So, you know, he was literally, you know, the first person you'd see with like a, a whatever the thing was, he was always the first you know, to have it. Yeah. Moog, which we'll talk about. Yeah. So the Hammond solo box was the first thing he had. And then when the Wurlitzer came out, he had that. So, um, the electric piano. Yeah. 
Uh, I also have that he used a clavio line, which yeah. you may remember from our discussion about Joe Meek. Yes. And the tornadoes. Um, he it did. was he used, used on that Telstar. Same... Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he apparently had one of those. It had vacuum tube oscillators. And um, it was, you know, cited as an organ. But it's sometimes can called like the first synthesizer. But I think that was for marketing purposes. Yeah. You know, the thing about the synthesizer is, you know, especially pre, you know, Model D Minimoog blowing up, you know, for live musicians, like, you know, that people that would develop these things were like, okay, we have this thing. We think it sounds pretty cool, but how do we market it? How do we, how do we even, you know, communicate to people what it is? And so you see that a lot in the history of electronic instruments. The organ was something that was very common that people had and very easily marketable. So I think that was sort of the category that everything yeah, fell into. Yeah, it's an organ. Yeah. Yeah, it's an organ was kind of like the tastes like chicken of <laughs> electronic instruments. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got to get people to be open to trying these things. But Sun Ra... You did not need to open his mind. His mind was completely open and he was just like waiting for the technology to be where his mind already was. Give me the weird stuff. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people in his early life would say like, you know, I've never met a person like him. You know, there's really no one that has these interests that we've met or, and, and with the talent too. I mean, you really can't dismiss how talented he was as a pianist. Um, Right. Yeah. When you hear uh, people in his band uh, get interviewed and they say, you know, like he was, you know, thrown down like, you know, some of the greats, you know, like Dizzy Gillespie and um, Charlie Parker, you know, those names get thrown out, you know, Miles Davis, like he, they say that he held his own, you know, Thelonious Monk. Yeah. Like with. And those people said that about him too. Yeah. They were, they were like, yeah, we, we got a lot of crap so to speak when when we first started as well but you know his music swings yeah he didn't care about commercialization he didn't care about being accepted by mainstream in any way and he had a lot to say about the record industry and mainstream music and consumption of you know what people were listening to and what was being force-fed to them and what he thought should be um he saw a lot of problems with that the way that, you know, the marketing of things and who was allowed to be popular. He saw, he could see things from a different angle that, you know, it's probably easy for us to see now. We have the internet, we have history, but he was living in those moments and saying things that, you know, we would say now from the future, but he was saying them in the moment. It's very future-minded. So I think a lot of that comes from the other most kind of influential element I found from his childhood was that there was a library at the Black Masonic Lodge in his area that he was allowed to go and, you know, he could read all the books for free and have access to them. But what kind of books were there? Some pretty weird stuff. Not your typical, you know, encyclopedias at the library. This was a curated library for the lodge. We keep talking about Lodge 49. We've been talking about that a lot. Um, that it had, you know, books on Freemasonry and, you know, esoteric topics and the occult, um, Egyptology, you know, which probably wasn't called that at the time. It wasn't your mother's Um, library. (laughs) Yeah. So to me that when I read that, I was like, oh, 
you know, if you're 11, 12, 13 years old and you're reading these books voraciously, it sounds like all he did was read books and play piano and write arrangements, then, you know, that's pretty formative time. You know, during that time is when, you know, the music industry tries to capture children's ears with pop music, right? Tries, and, you know, that's the stuff that you remember so nostalgically from your youth, what was so impactful for you while well, he was reading about Freemasonry. And, you know, alternate religions and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, what formed his open mind. He was obviously already very open, but then that kind of education gave him the language, I guess, to express his ideas. And then the war came along. <laughs> yes. Um, I will say before the war, though, he did go to college. He did have a teacher. Oh, yeah, that's right. He squeezed college in there. He squeezed college in there. Um, he did have a music teacher in high school that actually um, recruited him for her band because she was trying to you know, make it as a singer, as a jazz singer. Um, and I feel like that's really important because that's when, you know, she actually ditched the band to go to New York, but she had formed it. And so Sun Ra actually became the leader of that band and kept it going. And I think that was his first experience being a band leader. He gravitated toward the leadership yeah. aspect. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a very formative time for him. And he continued to play in clubs and play professionally at, from being a teenager, you know, that's, and he never stopped really. But he did, you know, have a teacher get him a scholarship to college to study music. But he was only there for a year. And while he was there... It was like kind of technical vocational school kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he claimed, you know, maybe a decade after this, he started telling this story. Before we jump into the war, can we go to the story? Of course. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't trying to jump the gun. I know. It's hard. Like, I want to talk about the timeline. It's not but my favorite part of the story anyway, <laughs> yeah. to be honest. I mean, it's probably it, the worst part of the story. It's very sad. Yeah. Um, but I think this is, you know, kind of tells you why all of that happened. He started telling the story from what we can tell in the early 50s. 1952 is when people said they first heard him telling this story. But he claims... That in this first year of college that he was in, about 1936, that he was abducted by aliens. And I want—I actually have the actual like text of what his story was, because they say that his story never changed. That would have been, you know, 40-some 40, 40 years that he was telling the story, and it never changed. So that's pretty rare. So to him, it was real. We will perpetuate the myth that it was real. Um, he was in... What we would consider, you know, he was meditating. He didn't call it that, but deep concentration. He claimed that a bright light appeared around him and that his whole body was changed. I think he called it transmolecularization. Um, he could see through himself. So cool. his, yeah, his molecular makeup changed and he was taken up out, out of his human form and he was landed on a planet that he identified as Saturn. So he's, he claims he was teleported. And he, these aliens wanted to talk with him. Oh, he says they had an antenna on each ear and an antenna over each eye. And they told him to stop attending college. He said there was going to be great trouble in the schools and the world's going into complete chaos. And that he was to speak through his music and the world would listen. 
and then they dropped him back on Earth. So his myth is, you know, this is the origins of it, if you've ever been curious. We did a lot of research to find out, you know, when did he start telling this story? Did it ever change? Did the timeline change of when it happened? Um, there have been reports that he started, that he said it happened when he was in Chicago, which would have been in the 40s, but other reports that it happened, and this is why he dropped out of college. So it's hard to reconcile that a little bit, but from what we can tell from our research, from our X-Files research on UFO stories and alien abduction stories, even if he started telling this story in 1952, it is one of the very first tellings of an alien abduction story. There were UFO sightings that happened as early as 1897. And there was one sci-fi book that I found from the 20s that described, hey, you know what, since I'm, you know, we're exploring these sci-fi ideas, there's probably a chance that alien abduction could be a thing. I didn't quite say it that way. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the chances of him having read that book, maybe it was in the Masonic Lodge library. Maybe. That's the only thing I can point to. But outside of that, alien abduction stories didn't start until 1957. So I think it's fair to say that, you know, he was abducted by aliens before anyone else. Right. And was able to have a way of seeing the world and speaking to the world through music and also his poetry to give us a sense that, you know, we are self-destructing. You know, the story um, that he was telling, the myth that he was propagating is really not, no, not any different than what we need to hear today, which is, right, like, you know, nuclear war, the way we're treating the planet, you know, we're, we're destroying everything and our priorities in the wrong place. Right. Yeah. The, the misplaced priorities, um, you know, he, he definitely felt like the human race was on a downturn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that he was here. He said his mission was mission impossible. He was here to save the planet, save humanity, um, by telling, you know, through the music, through the cosmic vibrations of the music, he was tuning into the universe and trying to share that message because it's the universal language, right? He could go and they did travel the world with their music. He could go anywhere in the world and music was the universal language that could reach people. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> when the war came around just a few years after this alien abduction happened, um, they also, it wasn't in this passage, but, um, he was told to promote peace. That was the key element that, um, you know, no more war, we need peace. So when the war came around and he was drafted for world war two, he became a conscientious objector saying that, you know, he cannot be part of this war because he's here to promote peace. He went before a judge with this conscientious objection and they rejected it. And then he tried to use, you know, his health. He had a health issue. Um, they rejected that. And then they assigned him to, um, I guess, manual labor, forestry. And he didn't show up. So that's why he was arrested, actually. So anyone who was a conscientious objector in World War II was, was assigned manual labor. And he rejected that, so he was sent to jail. He was in jail for a year, and he appealed again to... He was like, okay, I'll go do that manual labor now. Yeah, he did, um, uh, he did eventually do it. Yeah, so he did that. Um, but eventually, I think they also released him for his health issues. So this is probably the span of like two or three years 
that he's fighting against this. Although one one interesting detail I read was that when he went before the judge, when they were like, you, you have to be drafted, like all of these reasons aren't you know, worthwhile. We're rejecting all this. He said that if he went to war, he was going to use his training and the weapons to kill the highest military officer he could find. And that's how he ended up getting thrown in jail. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They were like, okay, buddy. What? They said they had never met anyone like him before. Again, another person who says this about him. Um, in so a very he was bold. harsh manner, he from was, what I remember. He was yeah. very bold, and he felt, I think, emboldened by this mission that he is not human. He is here to promote peace, and he is here to share a message that, you know, we need to embrace the unknown, and we need to, you know, raise our consciousness. So these are words I'm using. I don't know if he would use them. It's hard to find the right language for how he talked about things. He's very poetic. I loved it, yeah. Yes, here, I did write this down. If he was inducted, he would use the the weapons and training to kill the first high-ranking military officer. <laughs> just, just, it's, like, it's like, okay, pal. <laughs> yeah, yeah go, go clean up the forest for a while. We're going to keep an eye on you. Um, mm. So yeah, yeah, but after was... he was released, he went back to Birmingham, and um, from there, he decided to move to Chicago, which, you know, was part of... A migration that was um, happening at the time, from yeah. People from the south going to Chicago, and it became sort of the center of culture. It was a happening place. Very happening. This is in the forties. He always goes to the places that are the most happening. So we'll continue to see that throughout. He seems his life. to have like this beacon that puts him right where like the most pivotal cultural movements are happening, right in those moments. Yep. It's kind of hard to dismiss this idea that he's like a future being because he seemed to always know. So he went to Chicago in 1946, and this is really where he finds his community and he finds support and other people who are interested in these ideas that he's been so interested in. Um, you know, there was political activism and, you know, other people who were reading these same interesting books that he had been reading. So he found other people to like, he actually started a book club to talk about these ideas. Um, he got in one of his more successful trios. Yeah. He was also playing music this whole time, right? Even, you know, when he was doing the manual labor, they let him play piano at night. Right. So there was never a time when he wasn't playing music. He also didn't believe in sleep. Mm, He was a cat napper. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently, you know, like during rehearsals, because like if they weren't rehearsing, they were performing. There was really no end to to the music. He would be playing and then he would just take a cat nap. But there was no discussion of it. And you didn't know when he was going to wake up again. So if you were in the orchestra, you had to always be ready to be rehearsing again. Mm-hmm. When he Apparently, would wake up. Thomas Edison and Da Vinci and Napoleon also catnapped. Oh, and many more. Yeah, I'm sure Cat- many more. It was like this idea that like geniuses don't sleep, mm-hmm. which I don't want to perpetuate because I think sleep is very important for our health. Um, but some people do sleep in these like catnap cycles, which I just. I'm starting to get to the stage in my life where I might start taking on the catnap philosophy because I don't sleep through the night anyway at this point that's a good point point. and so it's like well, what if i <laughs> woke up right now like got out of bed i'm already awake yeah what if i just get out of bed and don't fight it and start playing guitar 
Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, in the afternoon, I'll, I get tired. So, like, want to sleep, but I fight it because I'm like, no, I won't sleep tonight. And then I don't sleep anyway. There's something to this. I feel like I would write. But it's also some really cool bad for your heart. <laughs> ideas, you know, like it, at, in that state. That's true. Because my thoughts are are, go, are in a place where I'm like thinking very clearly. I have a very clear account of the past. You're connected to a different part of your brain. Your different brain yeah. waves are firing. And it's like, ooh, I want that part of me to write some music. Yeah. <laughs> so if things start getting weird in our world and you start noticing that. We're doing things at different times of day. We've decided to start catnapping. <laughs> Might as well. If it worked for Sun Ra, then, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, I, I'll take a minute to say that Sun Ra, after doing all this research, has become one of my absolute personal heroes. Yeah. Um, and it, I am very much obsessed with his way of living and being... And I'm really on board with it and have enjoyed learning about it. Yeah, it's been really inspiring um, just because it takes you down sort of alternative pathways and ideas to explore. Uh, not so much. commitment level. It's the commitment level yeah. that's so inspiring. Like, I'm just so impressed with his degree of commitment to the things that he was passionate about. Yeah, I mean, when he was in Chicago, um, like I was saying, he met sort of like-minded people. He also met this teenager who became his business manager. They started a book club, and they started, um, you know, gathering more people to be part of uh, the orchestra. So it started with just a trio, and then eventually they started adding more and more people. But the whole concept was this sort of monk-like devotion yes. to the music and to the group. So, you know, if you were in the orchestra, you had to expect, you know, rehearsals were every day. They could be in the middle of the night. They could be early in the morning. You had to always be ready. And he expected discipline and precision. Those are two things he says throughout his life. Discipline and precision. That you can't be free you can't play free jazz. You can't improvise without discipline and precision. Right. So he expected a lot um, from the people that he played with and that he was, you know, he mostly, I would say, arranged and wrote most of the parts. I mean, they were reading music, even though it seemed very free and there yeah. were moments of improvisation. It was composed. It was arranged. It was pre-planned. It was rehearsed. The melodic themes were definitely, mm -hmm. you know, something that was written on on sheet music and or on paper and even solos. He would write their solos. Yeah, the solos. You know, you'd think that they were just completely going off, and they were actually, you know, something they had rehearsed. And I think that was part of the magic for him, is he liked making or composing music that seemed a lot more free than it actually mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he, he's, you can tell that he enjoyed being sort of a marionette yeah. of sorts. He with really, his like you were saying, he really embraced this idea of being a leader. He thought that we didn't have enough of that in our society, right? Like, why did we reject this idea of having leaders? Um, and I'm curious to look into that a little bit more, but you can see that he was a leader, but he wasn't, even though he was like, this is how it's going to be if you're part of my crew, he wasn't uh, confrontational. Uh, he wasn't um, 
dictatorial, like authoritative, For, yeah. you know, For his example, presence was very calm. He was just doing it. And if you were doing it, you were there and you were doing it together. For example, if, <laughs> if he wasn't into, uh, the way that you were playing, if you were part of the orchestra, um, he wouldn't like, you know, just scream at you in the middle of a rehearsal. He would tell everyone else except for you to come to a meeting place, probably packed and ready to go. And he would skip town. This was literally in a, an excerpt that I read from his Wikipedia. Wow. I didn't catch that one. Yeah. He would, they would skip, they would just skip town. I guess the, the bass player was telling this story. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and so you would just find yourself stranded you know, I guess this would happen. This was sort of, it makes sense that it would happen on the road. Like if yeah. they were playing shows, you know, this would be, you know, if somebody, you know, played a few wrong notes at a gig or something, you know, he, I get the impression that he was, he was strict. He just wasn't confrontational. Yeah. You weren't going to get yelled at. <laughs> you, you were just going to get ghosted. He didn't yell. He invented ghosting. <laughs> <laughs> he invented ghosting. That's the most extreme form of ghosting I've heard in a while. Yeah, uh, it is. He did. He talks about how like, and it, it was less about like playing a wrong note and more just being on the wrong like vibe, being in the wrong frequency, being, you just didn't fit. He said it would just be so obvious. That you didn't fit. Even to the audience right. that you just didn't belong in Always the Always the idea that you were part of a bigger picture that he... Mm -hmm had very, um, you know, specifically in his mind. But he was on that wavelength. He was riding that frequency. And if you were riding it, it was obvious to him. And if you weren't, that was also obvious. But he would, like, pick people up, you know, along the way that were sort of like a diamond in the rough situation that he saw potential that maybe people had forgotten about these. They were sort of like forgotten people. Um, and he would bring them into the fold and, you know, try to get them on the wavelength. And a lot of people did. And a lot of people didn't. There was a lot of passing through. It sounded to me like he would prefer if people had stayed forever, like the right people that he was like, you're on the frequency. Let's do this forever for infinity. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people wanted to have families. So this sort of monk lifestyle, it wasn't just like, okay, you have to be on the, the wavelength with me. You also have to give up any desire to have your own home, your own life, go out after the shows, you know, have a family. I mean, that, they were essentially you know. on call. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they all lived together at one point. The entire band was on call. Like if you, if you were anywhere and there was a rehearsal to be had, you know, there's probably a messenger sent to you. And if you didn't come, yeah. like, you know, you were out, like you were ghosted. Yeah. You were ghosted on <laughs> like they, you just, you know, had to show up whenever there was, they said there was rehearsals at all hours of the all night hours. cause he didn't sleep. And, you know, so basically if that was going to be a problem in any way. Yeah. You know, it was very obvious if you didn't fit the culture, uh, just to jump back into the timeline a little bit to live inside of time, which he did not, but we do. Maybe we don't. I don't know. What is time? Uh, they did form a record label. So he's like one of the first people to, you know, in this genre, have his own independent label and maintain that through the, their entire legacy. Um, it's called L Saturn Records. And they pressed and released all their albums. So that's why he, they've, I think it was a hundred full length albums. Yeah. A hundred full length and a th over a thousand singles. And a lot of times different versions of songs would mm -hmm. get substituted on, 
you know, like say the West Coast pressing of this certain record collection that they put together, you know, like there'd just be songs would be swapped out. It's um, very hard to track the actual albums, the actual releases, because they would press stuff for their live shows. And then everyone in the band would be given a stack to hand out and they would all do their own artwork. It was the absolute opposite of so the it's pop like, model. <laughs> there's millions of, of cover art versions of each release. There's millions of versions of each song. So anything that you're finding album wise, you know, physical or digital copies, like these are sort of like curated compilations that have been pieced together. And kind if, of after the fact. If you find a non-reissue album of Sun Ra, buy it. Yeah. And ship it to me. <laughs> um, no, it's buy, priceless. Buy, just buy the thing. You know, like if yeah. you see it, you know, you got to get it. It's it's mandatory. I think there's actually a lot on CD because. Mm. Well, there were, yeah, a lot of stuff was reissued. That was like at the time, you know, he passed in the 90s and that's when CDs were booming. So I think there's probably a lot of CDs floating around more than vinyl. Mm -hmm. um, that were maintained. Uh, but you know, just to talk about the group and when it formed. So in the fifties in Chicago, they started forming the orchestra and in the, it, I think it was in the late fifties is when it sort of like officially became the orchestra. And when they started dressing in the space age, sort of Egyptian science fiction themed, uh, costumes. Um, and because Sun Ra had been, you know, he'd been a band leader. He'd been, you know, a pianist in other bands um, in Chicago for so long. And they always had to wear a uniform, right? They always had to wear a suit. Um, and he really liked the idea of the uniform, um, but he took it, you know, to outer space. So it wasn't just, let's look as weird as possible. It was a way for everyone to have a uniform. But to, it's like immediately, you, you know, this isn't going to be a traditional jazz show yeah and to think about it like he you know his formative years in music were spent during the big band era yeah so this was sort of his take on the big band yeah like absolutely he's like you know this he this is seemed my to really version like align with the idea of you know being a band leader and having a band but right and you see the benny goodman footage and everything mm -hmm. and there's you know like you know there's like a Everybody's got like a little podium. Yeah, you got to wear your tails, your full tails. And the, and the, like it's matching, a very, very uh, put together. Um, matching suits. But he really didn't want to be taken seriously, right? Like he wanted you to immediately, if you're in this space and you see what's going on, you're already, your constructs are broken, right? You're already thinking outside the box, right? right? He needed to get you there as fast as possible so he could get you as deep into this idea as possible. He felt very called to this mission. Um, oh, in 1961, the, the orchestra moved to New York City to the village. So they all lived together because they couldn't afford to otherwise. We were joking about how we're like, wow, even in the 60s in the village, it wasn't affordable. Like, Oh, yeah. Was there ever a time anything was affordable, ever? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, in terms of whatever their standards were for, yeah. for rent. But it makes they, sense. Like, live together. Yeah. You know, it's more affordable. You can rehearse, be on call all the time. Uh, but they um, they got a... Oh, it took five years. So they moved to New York City in 1961. And by 1966, they had gotten a residency at Slug's Saloon. So this was their regular Monday night gig. 
If you were around during that time, you may have seen them. They performed every Monday night and they attracted the, you know, the avant-garde crowd of the time, you know, and the other artists of the time that were in the village. So they were in this like space where, yes, there was avant-garde jazz happening, but it was much more of the like Greenwich Village folk explosion. But also members of the Velvet Underground. Yeah, that whole convergence, like that's not the place you would think oh, we're a big band. Like, we're a weird big band. Uh, let's go to this place. Like, that wouldn't be where you would expect to go, but it was exactly the right place for them to be, to be accepted by a new audience and to be encouraged to be even weirder, right? During this time, they were able to be even freer and explore more avant-garde ideas because there was it was in the air. It was accepted. It was expected. It was desired by the audiences, Right. So a lot of like what can happen with a band is like, is the audience handling it? Can they, are they receiving it? Are they supporting it? Right. And obviously he leaned into this, you know, sort of the way people were, you know, continuing to be more open, you know, Mm -hmm. to receive this sort of entertainment, you know, like he's like, oh, great. This is finally starting to align. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm thinking too, like BB and Louis Barron were there during this time. Yeah. You know, so this this convergence of, like, we always like to look at the other people we've studied, the, the tape musicians of, you know, the early electronic pioneers uh, from the 50s and 60s. Like, who were they rubbing elbows with and bumping into? And I feel like they're, they were probably around during this time. So I, I need to look into that a little bit more and see if there's any references to those people encountering Sun Ra. Because I think they would have really liked it and, and engaged in the sort of like the gearness together as well right yeah and uh you know like you said though it it was five years but that's that's a pretty short time in the timeline of sun Ra. that's true i just didn't realize how long it had been it was during this time that he started using tape delay to assemble spatial sound pieces so uh the first recording if you've heard saturn that incorporates tape delay i haven't found any evidence of like the specific gear he was using I haven't seen any, you know, articles on that, but there, I pulled that out of something specifically. Maybe he was, so was using. Like, ding ding ding. I mean, a lot of times when people experimented with tape delay in the world of early electronic music, it was simply just an extra tape recorder mm-hmm. they had. You know, like it yeah. wasn't a commercial unit. Yeah, I would expect that. Um, a lot of the other band members, when they were interviewed, talked about how, you know, they rehearsed so much and. Whatever gear was around, he was always doing something that wasn't supposed to be done with it. He was creating reverbs and delays and, you know, overdrive and, you know, new... He was trying to create some new sound. He was trying to get something out of these machines um, that they weren't supposed to do, right? So he was always experimenting. And so I imagine if they had, you know, the tape recorders around in the space with them while they're practicing, recording that he was messing around with all that right. to see what would happen. I mean, that's the beauty of tape is that it lends itself to messing around with it. <laughs> you know, you have this device that, you know, is, is meant to record, but there's other controls on it. Yeah. And so they sort of beg you to play. Yeah. I've heard, um, you know, like Pauline Oliveros talk about that, you know, tape machines were what were around. So they eventually, they just started doing other stuff with it. <laughs> What else can we do with this thing? <laughs> That's, this is what we have. Right. 
Um, so little did they know that would spawn all the most important ideas. Well, the crazy thing is that, you know, all of these years later, it's still extremely hip and fun and the thing that everybody wants to do, like task cam, yeah. release a tape, a, a four track, like everybody will be excited and, you know, we won't buy one because we already have it. <laughs> And we're broke, but yeah, <laughs> you can only buy so much gear at once. But uh, if they did that, I'm sure we would eventually want to have that. It would be very popular. I'm sure they get messages every day. Well, they're teasing it a lot right now. I mean, this is a little bit off topic, <laughs> but um, you know, it's the 50th anniversary of of Tascam, and so they're you know showing all these you know, like 80s ads for four tracks and their reel-to-reels and their mixers and everything. And so it seems a little fishy to mm. me. Yeah, why are you teasing us like this, Tascam? All the vintage Give stuff. Give us the goods. All the tapes. Yes, tape. <laughs> they have their gear. reasons. They're legitimate reasons, but... Sponsor the podcast. We can, we can figure it out. <laughs> if we put our heads together, we can figure this out, Tascam. Uh, shortly after they got that residency... In the village, they moved to Philadelphia because the building they were li living in was sold and became too expensive to live there. Not a familiar story at all. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> so they moved to Philly and they bought a house. And again, they all lived together, but they still traveled to New York every week for their residency. Uh, so it well, was once just, you get in in New York, you know, you're yeah. going to you're going to hold that's, on to that. That's still I mean, obviously not today. and Nobody's doing anything right now. But, you know, that's still a very common thing when we lived in New York. There was always talk of like, what if we all moved to Philly, you know? Right. Because the train is so easy to go back and forth. And there were people we knew who were doing that. Or so Jersey. It was, no, Philly, because it's cheaper. Right. Cheaper to travel as well. Gotcha. It's very expensive to travel from Jersey into the city. Uh, I did not know tolls. that. And I did not live there for very long. <laughs> so that explains that. Yeah. Uh, so... Oh, this is one of my favorite stories. Um, and if you've seen the documentary, A Joyful Noise, then you already know this story, but I love this story, so I'm going to tell it. So when they moved to Philadelphia, they obviously set up, you know, a rehearsal space in the basement of this house, and they were playing every day, all manner of hours of the night and day. And at one point, the cops came and they said, you know, we've had a request for you guys to, to turn it down, right? A noise complaint, if you will. And what are you, what are you all doing in here? And we heard you're playing loud music. And apparently Sunrock came to the door with a Bible and he said, we're making a joyful noise. We're not making music. We're making a joyful noise. And he like pointed to the scripture that said, you know, about making a joyful noise. And so apparently they never bothered him again. And the, the community actually really felt like they were a positive influence, you know, on the neighborhood. So they were welcomed and supported, even though they were being, they were making a joyful noise at all hours of the night. They had a drug-free um, That's true. He was very... Reputation. Um, yeah. He was very adamant that, you know, he didn't do drugs or drink. And he wanted that, you know, he didn't want anyone using drugs to get to the higher consciousness, the music was the conduit for that. But also it makes sense when you're, you know, 
corralling a large group yeah. of people in the 60s and 70s <laughs> if you know if that was not necessarily your reputation at least you know not to True. say that it never happened it's a good pr spin for sure it's a way to keep having your rehearsals and not mm-hmm. getting complained on and like you know even if they were complained on they they weren't going to find anything so you know it definitely I would say helped the cause. But I think too, cause he was all about discipline. And so for me, it sounds like, you know, if you're going to have discipline and precision, you can't really be spacing out on drugs. Right. And think about touring, you yeah. know, like one of the, the stories that I hear constantly in the music industry is how people get busted when they're on tour. Oh my gosh. And Most so common thing. obviously that was, you know, something that he probably, an experience he did not want to have. Yeah. Having very wise, you know, spent some time in jail. He just didn't want to <laughs> mess around with any of that. Yeah. So, you know, that was, that was a really smart move. But I think it's respected. also like of the time, the people who were talking about these cosmic ideas were mostly people who were engaging with drugs and for him to, again, be in the center of these cultural hotbeds. And not be doing that just proves again how outside it was of time, countercultural, how future thinking he was. You know, to not he's like, be no, no, drugs. that's not it. This is the real message. Or I'm already there. Yeah. <laughs> he it sort of validated his um, status mm-hmm. as a non-human mm-hmm. <laughs> by not participating. Yeah, in that's drugs. true. Maybe they just didn't work for him because they're it didn't work of with the his earth. Chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, uh, when they were living in this Philadelphia Would house. Would LSD get an alien high? I've literally never thought about that before. Not to call You've left me speechless. an alien, but. He didn't. Yeah. He, he said he was like of the angel race. A non-human. Race, he, didn't, non-human. he said he was not human. Yeah. Does Anything LSD only human. work for humans? I don't know. That's fascinating. Um, there was a tree outside across the street from their house in Philadelphia that was struck by lightning and they turned it into a drum. I thought that was awesome. Uh, they caused, they called it the cosmic infinity drum. So if you ever see them playing live and there's this big, you know, wooden drum and he's playing it with these curved staffs, staffs. Yeah. That's the cosmic infinity drum. So I feel like that was like a lot, like when the, whenever the show started, like that's how they opened setting the tone with the cosmic infinity drum. Yeah. That drum became sort of the star of the show. Keeps the glue, I guess. Listening to the gentleman that made it tell that story. Yeah. James Jackson. So cool. Yeah. He, he said something about how like. It took him like a year to, to figure out how to do it. Yes. Like I Talk just about love, discipline. Yeah, I love that, you know, he just worked on this thing for a year, you know, and, and learned everything about how to do it. And then if you look at it, the artwork oh, yeah. is like a nod to a the Egyptian mm-hmm. carvings, you mm-hmm. know, and it, it was just super elaborate, super awesome. It looked like it was something that you could, that came out of King Tut's cat. Uh, yeah, it did. It looked uh, like an artifact. Yeah tomb or whatever mm-hmm. yeah yeah so that's that's a central instrument um he did require that you know all the horn players also played reed instruments and flutes 
So everyone had, you know, when you watch the live performances, you'll see all these really interesting instruments along with traditional ones, and everyone's swapping things out all the time. And that was Sun Ra specifically requesting. So I think people got hired, you know, for a specific instrument that they played, but then he was like, no, nah, you gotta, I need all these other things. So everyone had to be a multi-instrumentalist, mm -hmm. which, you know, sounds fun to me. For sure. I didn't know this. He was on Rolling Stone in 1969. He was on the cover. I want to find that. I'm going to look that up and put it in our group. So if you're in the Cosmic Tape Music Club Facebook group, we'll be throwing some cool stuff that we find that we've been talking about in this podcast in the group. Um, so you can watch the videos we're talking about, the documentaries. You can see these photos, magazine covers. Back when Rolling Stone was cool. Yeah, I mean, that's like the height of Rolling Stone being cool. It's 1969, and he was on the cover. So the hip, cool people understood that he was, you know, an icon of the time. Even if he wasn't as well-known, he wasn't on the radio. Mm -hmm. He was on, like, college radio or local radio stuff. And we haven't even gotten to the California era yet. Yeah, so um, he started, I want to say around 1969, they started traveling to the West Coast. Um, and playing shows out there and they were very, I'd say well received, but not by who they expected to be received by. I think there was an anecdote about how the deadheads did not get it. It was like too far out for them. Yeah. And you'd think that, you know, like a jam band, like the Grateful Dead, you know, with the, the acid tests and everything, you know, all these, you know, they were very, well, again, you know, that's a very, with, the strange and the eclectic. Uh, but from the drug angle. From the drug angle. Maybe it was the fact Whereas that... Whereas they, you know, I think if you... Well, actually, there was somebody who said that they would drop acid right at the beginning of Sun Ra shows. Yeah, people were definitely and on drugs like, watching Sun Ra. Halfway through, you were like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> right, it would make sense. But I also wonder You'd if, get like, on the, level. the drug culture, like, made it to, like, unpleasant, didn't jive it wasn't the right frequency mm -hmm. for the experience i often Which is wonder very interesting i'll yeah. never know i'll never get to do that experiment uh but maybe some of you have and you can share your stories with us <laughs> <laughs> he actually became an artist in residence at uc berkeley in 1971 he taught a course called the black man in the cosmos uh, apparently it was like half the class he was talking about you know his philosophies and then the and you know certain books he assigned and then the other half was the orchestra playing I'd love to see a lecture. It wasn't a well-attended course, apparently. <laughs> love to be um, a fly on the wall and during that lecture. And didn't last for very long, but yeah. I don't know if there's any footage of that. Um, I haven't found any yet. But if you attended his course, And it's such a prestigious institution, you know? It's no slouch of Yeah, it's really interesting that, you know, they, they did their first tour out there and then stayed for a while. As many did. Yeah. They got sucked into the... The strange trip. I do. It's funny because I was thinking about, you know, whenever I watch the group, um, the orchestra in, you know, there's a video of them in Egypt, you know, they're, they're performing, but it's also a theatrical performance because there's not actual audio. Mm -hmm. There's audio that was added later. Uh, it reminds me of the Merry Pranksters. It totally does. Yeah, I get that. Um, but they had a, a different mission. They were more disciplined. Obviously, they're a, a band. But there's this element of like dressing in ways that kind of 
break the norms, right? Like trying to throw you off and put you in a different element, bring you into this world that they've created. And the style of dance and theatricality, you know, it's, it's mis- mixing so many elements and styles. Um, okay, so this leads into, you know, probably the most famous thing about Senra is the movie Space is the Place. Space is the Place is probably something you think of when you hear Senra, like the most common phrase. Album, it was a movie. It was something they said for a long time before it became, you know, the tagline. Uh, as with most of their songs or albums, like they evolved over time. They played them a lot and there were lots of different versions, but it gets like cemented by this movie from 1974. <laughs> and apparently I wondered how it was funded. So I looked into it and it was apparently a San Francisco public TV station producer. How did this get made? Yeah, it <laughs> was the first thought I had. Um, there's a podcast called How Did This Get Made about weird like B movies and... I feel like they should do space as the place if they haven't already, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, it was actually, yeah, a TV station producer or a couple of them. They worked with a screenwriter and, you know, the credits actually say that Sun Ra wrote, wrote it. I thought wrote it and produced it and directed it. Sounds right. But it sounds like there was a lot more behind it because it is, you know, it's a, you know, an indie production but it's definitely got a story and multiple cameras and you know it's not just like some diy thing yeah for for a experience it was high budge i would say yeah yeah it's a really out there of its time uh film absolutely absolutely watch it (laughs) definitely watch it and it will give you a lot of insight into all these things we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people stop there and there's so much more to explore. So don't stop at space is the place, but it's a, it's a good entry point. Um, there's some really cool footage in there of, you know, his character is in a spaceship and it has synthesizers in it, obviously. <laughs> so I don't know when the, well, he um, arrives in on spaceship. Yeah. Oh, the spaceship itself is, amazing i don't know who built this thing but they had amazing production design spaceship is so awesome but when you go inside of it it's like a hall of mirrors kind of vibe um and his mini moog is in there and it's just like a set that i'd want to live in like i wouldn't be upset if my house that i lived in was that spaceship yeah for sure (laughs) (laughs) it's very cool uh there was uh so this was done in they actually filmed it in oakland and simultaneously while they were filming the movie they also recorded the album space is the place which is considered like the soundtrack because some of the songs are the same but there's a lot of songs that aren't in the movie that are on the album it was just kind of like a simultaneous uh recording that they were doing Mm mm-hmm and something I heard Sun Ross say about the recording process, if you're curious, is that he was a one take kind of guy, kind of non-human. Hey, um, that sounds familiar. You know, he wanted it precise. He wanted it accurate, but it had to be one take. That is how I like to do things as well. Um, you know, because, you know, you want that live feeling and he didn't want to do any overdubs or any editing. And I think that, you know, speaks to the fact that the way that they performed, you know, when you're live, you only get one shot. And the energy from that is different than if you're trying to cut and paste it together. Yeah, there's, I've seen, you know, talking about you for a sec, I've seen this, like, 
you have this ability to, I don't know if there's like a chemical reaction that happens for you or something, but like once, you know, like we're, we're in a one take scenario and you really shine. And I think that you you have helped me get better in that Mm, regard. Interesting. Because we definitely come at the recording process from a different background. Like I'm embracing that more now and feel like I've gotten better at it because of you. And I've had to learn more of the, you know, layering, overdubbing, doing multiple takes, splicing things together approach. And it's just, it's a different part of my brain, you know? And I think that maybe people that were involved with Sun Ra maybe were enlightened in the same respect. Like he Mm -hmm. probably, you know, obviously, you know, they're, they're engaged in these, you know, rigorous performances or rehearsals and, you know, like you, you had to be there and it was, you know, very much something that, you know, you'd have to be really committed to the lifestyle, um, you know, to stay part of. And I feel like that was part of the attraction, you know, was Mm -hmm. that like, you know, he made you a better performer. He made you a better recording artist Mm -hmm. because he was, you know, very, he stuck to his guns, you know, when it came to, you know, his, his philosophies about it. And I respect that. Yeah. You were on the Sun Ra spaceship or you weren't off. There was no convincing him otherwise. Uh, So definitely watch Space is the Place. (laughs) Oh, this is another thing I want to drop in the group when I find it, but apparently they performed on Saturday Night Live in 1978. So you may find it before we do. Drop it in the group. I really got to see this. And that was an an amazing era for Saturday Night That's Live true. as a cast. That's true. I would be curious what the episode was, like who was in the cast at the time. So during the same time, 78 to 80, they introduced the Outer Space Visual Communicator. This was a, Ooh, it's called that? a large electronic creation. Uh, so Bill Sebastian actually invented this and it produced uh images while they were playing live um it was performed at a keyboard and they would position it center stage behind the orchestra and he would sit bill would sit on stage with them and i read that it actually was like uh you would like finger paint with light to create the images so i there are some examples some video examples so i'm going to put that in the group as well but if you have been to one of these experiences with the Outer Space Visual Communicator, would love to hear about what that was like. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's a brief time. Um, they, they kept using it, you know, on and off later, but it says just 78 to 80 is really when they were using it at every performance. Yeah. Post in the comments your Sun Ra stories, you know, like if you, if you've had any personal Sun Ra stories, it would be awesome yeah, to. Cause everyone's experience is so unique, right? Just like there are thousands of recordings of all these songs, everyone's experiences of seeing them live, every it, live show was different right and your perception of what was going on is different than someone else's so i feel like we could put together like a mosaic of millions of stories and you know experiences of being around him or seeing them perform from you know from 80 to 90 they just kept performing and recording um the uh joyful noise that was 1980 that documentary um And then in 1990, he had his first stroke. So that's sort of the arc of the life and story 
of the Sun Ra Orchestra. But I'd really like to get into the cosmic keys of Sun Ra. We'd love to, to just take a moment to dive into the instruments he was using. Um, but before that, I just oh, wanted to that? note Ooh. that there is an amazing archive that already exists. Like if you're yes. interested in all things Sun Ra, um, the website is sunraarchive.webstarts.com. We'll throw that in our private group as well. Yeah. Maybe in the show notes too. We'll, we'll throw, um, you know, the references that we're talking about into the show notes. But there's, you know, just an encyclopedic uh, account. Yeah. A of lot of people have been keeping archives uh for a long time and just keeping all the artifacts and the documents uh to keep this all alive but that's the one (laughs) yeah but that's where it is all now on the interweb that's where it lives Mm -hmm. um but yeah keyboard wise um i want to tell the story of the moog factory yeah go for it so picture it 1969 um, he's just been on the cover of Rolling Stone. He's just been on the cover of Rolling Stone. We don't know. It, they, they, it was they, around, it's like a month apart. It's said from that, when it came out. He might have done the shoot earlier. You know, he gets an opportunity in October from a associate of his um, that was a journalist for Downbeat Magazine. Yes, so he was. The, the Rolling Stone came out in May. So Right, and that guy's name was uh, Tam Fiofori. And, um, he set up a meeting between, or set up a, an experience, I guess, to visit the Moog factory. But before that, Gershon Kingsley actually did a demonstration for him. I thought that him. was at the factory. No, it was oh, okay. in, in New York city. Gershon Kingsley did a demonstration for Sun Ra of the modular. At the, okay. Of the modular, mm-hmm. which led to. Which, which is why he was like, I gotta, I gotta know more about this. Right. And so he. This all happened like in, in within a few months of each other. He visited the uh, factory, which at the time was in Trumansburg, mm-hmm. um, New York, and um, they were testing the prototype of the Mini Moog, and this was the Model B, which is very rare, um, but it was actually given to Sun Ra after this, this experience so that he could try it out on the road. They were curious about yeah. the roadworthiness of the synth but while he was at the factory with i think gershon kingsley was also there sort of guiding him um you know he did a demonstration and a rather long performance um that was never intended for commercial release but he did it at the factory and it eventually was released of course yeah in the 90s Um, and this led to, you know, his experiments like Space Probe. Yes. If you have not heard, I think it's about a 17 minute long piece called Space Probe. It's on one of the collections. Yes. Um, it is just such an amazing example of how he could take something that already was an instrument that nobody had played with and make it sound like nothing you've ever heard and like nobody else was doing. They say that, you know, and I, I've listened to this and agree that, you know, he basically did just about anything you can imagine to do (laughs) in this one performance, you know, with the, he like demonstrated almost all of the types of sounds, you know, one might make 
in a single performance, you know, and I, I've listened to it and I, I agree. I mean, you're like, Oh yeah, there's the LFO modulating the pitch and there it is modulating the filter. And oop, there's some pink noise and some white noise and it's being filtered. And, you know, it sounds like, you know, there's just these crazy chirping sounds and very out of this world, very spacey, you know, mm-hmm. sounds that were being made. And, you know, it was literally his first experiment with it, you know, so that just, you know, to me exemplifies how, you know, how he addressed an instrument, you Mm -hmm. know, as, as a musician. And I've, I've been extremely impressed by that. You know, you see the footage of him, like basically like laying both arms down and doing like spins and stuff with his combo organ and, you know, making it sound like outer space music. Yeah. And it's just, it's just so inventive, you Mm -hmm. know, like it, it reminds me, um, you know, of other musicians that have this ability, you know, like Jimi Hendrix, Mm -hmm. you know, and how he addressed the guitar, like, you know, Sun Ra definitely had a similar, you know, just intimacy, you know? Yeah. I think it just plays into that philosophy they had of discipline and precision allows you to be free and to experiment. Yeah. And I certainly agree with that philosophy. Like it's hard to deny when you see it in action, like you have to rehearse so much Mm -hmm. to feel and look and present as if, you know, you are very comfortable, you know, like for it to seem natural to a group of people, the degree of, of planning and rehearsal that goes into that perception yes. is usually That's why I love watching amount. any footage of them rehearsing. You can't really tell, like, where where is he conducting? Where are they playing free, you know? It's, it's very hard to tell. I'm very, very interested to just kind of burrow myself into that. But when you like see... Like a fly on the wall. When you see footage of his rehearsals, you can tell that every moment was kind of planned out. Like, you know, it was very intentional. And so I just love the, you know, how, how he was able to do that. Yeah. So he was gifted that mini Moog model B. Uh, he wasn't gifted it. He just, he was lent it. They lent it to him, but they said they never got it back, but that it was, they were fine fine because, (laughs) you know, like they, they learned so much about his, uh, you know, the roadworthiness, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. that it wasn't. There wasn't any hard feelings about it. But he bought a Model D as soon as it came out. So that he could have um, both at once. Yeah. You know, he, he wanted the polyphony, basically, yeah. and wanted the ability to play maybe some, like, two-note chords and stuff. Um, actually, you get into a bit more with the multiple oscillators. So somehow but, he understood, like, I have to play both of these at the same time to create the sound that I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. So there, there we are back with the, you know, now he's building out his synthesizer circle mm-hmm. <laughs> around himself. Um, Later on, it said that he got into Yamaha digital stuff, like mm-hmm. the DX7. Yeah, he adopted whatever was going on, right? He the didn't SY77. have... SY77. He wasn't like, ooh, it's digital. <laughs> right. I he mean, embraced whatever, you know, was going to allow him to achieve the results he was going for. Yeah, and I think that that was actually very, you know, it it was a common move for people at the time to go from a Mini Moog to a Yamaha DX7. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why you hear the stories about Mini Moogs being picked up for, you know, 
single digits um, in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> and the DX7 maybe. made all of our favorite companies go under, but it also made all of those pieces of equipment very cheap at the time. But it was also a darn <laughs> fine synthesizer. Sure. And deserved, you know, to to be as popular mm -hmm. as it was. It's actually the... The concert he did a concert with John Cage, very controversial, um, which I think only just came out a few years ago. The recording, uh, and he played the Yamaha DX7, just the DX7 at that concert, which I thought was really interesting because he's so known for you know playing multiple keyboards and stacking the sounds and tweaking. Mm -hmm. Which, if you've ever used a DX7, it is not a tweaker's synth mm -hmm. that you cannot really edit a patch in real time it doesn't have any of those types of knobs like everything has to be programmed ahead of time and but i guess you could set up a nice string of presets and right. go through those if but you yeah that is interesting i haven't um you know dove into that history as much but i do know that that's the case that's what he played i do want to say that he is credited as being the first jazz musician to play an electric piano this was in 1956 um it's a composition called india so he does, I want to give him credit where credit is due. I think he cares about that. I'm not sure. I think he cares more about saving the planet, but I find it interesting. And I want to give him credit for that because he's a trailblazer. Um, then he added the clavinet. Which I've never really and a combo heard. Organ. Like I, I haven't like, when I, when I saw that he used a clavinet, I was like mm -hmm. kind of surprised because that's not the sound that I think of when I think of Sun Ra. But I think he would you know, adopt these keyboards as soon as they came out. And then, you know, another one would on come. Because a lot yeah. of, you know, if you watch the footage, there's, he always has a different rig. Right. It's almost always, there was a, he had some ARP stuff at one point. Yep. Um, yeah, which I could not then find any really reference of that. got into Krumar. Yeah, he had. The, I saw Krumar in a lot of footage. Which, you know, for our audience, that, that's an Italian company mm -hmm. um, that made. I actually recently are having a comeback but they did go under during the the, the dark ages of the dx7 <laughs> yeah they were one of the ones that... um he played a ds2 he played another one as well but that's ds2 is really cool the most common one that you'll see um and again there's like there's so many people like when you look up like the synths of sun Ra, everyone's like what did he play can you identify this one can you identify that one because he was always playing different things again being elusive you know it's not about the facts it's about the myth right yeah is it a gibson electric organ is it a farfisa you know yeah he definitely yeah. played he a played a farfisa of, a ton of gear but again yeah he was always swapping things out makes me wonder I if think he played a gibson if he too. was being like given these things oh he did yeah, the Kalamazoo. Um, because he just wanted to. You really can't go wrong if you said he played a keyboard instrument. <laughs> like, if you any given Every... keyboard, he might have had it at a time. You know, like he yeah. he embraced many of them. But he seemed to really embrace that mini Moog and yeah. keep that in his rig for a long time. As many did. I mean, yeah. that uh, it's probably one of until the, the DX7 best-selling synths of all time aside from the dx7 mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah so he he was an innovator in the synth world even as he was in the jazz world um and with performance i think the way that he incorporated you know dancers and singers and i think he had like fire breathers you know sort of like a mix of like 
the Merry Pranksters and a circus act and, you know, a big band. They would go out into the audience. They would walk through the audience. Some people said that, you know, you at one point you might be surrounded by like all the saxophone players. And, and they're just, just like, they're hoarding at you. <laughs> you're just going to lose your mind. Yeah. You just wanted to get you out of your box um, and reach for the unknown. I think the thing that sticks with me the most is that he talks about how the things we already know, the way we're already living, the known, we already are trapped in these known ways of existing. So the only thing left to do is to live in the unknown, to embrace the chaos, to embrace the darkness, right? We live on this tiny blue dot, right? In the middle of the vast expanding universe, the majority of which is darkness. Most of his songs reference this idea. And chaos, the chaos of the universe, the chaos of creation that's happening, right? Like things becoming stars being born and dying galaxies being born and dying that the unknown is where our future lies that embracing the unknown and letting go of the known which he considered to be misery and suffering he was like i look around the world and all i see is misery and suffering this is what is known we're living in the known like we need to embrace the unknown and i'm going to be thinking about that for a while And trying to embrace that. And you mentioned darkness. And I just, when you were saying that, something came to mind. You know, if you think about it, space is dark. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's exactly what I was saying. Yeah. Like being able to see in the darkness, adjusting to the darkness, right? That takes, you know, letting go of your fear, right? If you enter the darkness and you're just afraid and you close your eyes, right? You'll never know what's there. You have to adjust. You have to adjust to it. Um, and what's on the other side of that is even more unknown. So his philosophies, his poetry, his way of being, like he just, he embodied this myth that he talks about. He lived it. There was no, there was no discrepancy. There was no change. There was no like gotcha moments with Sun Ra. Like he was the real deal. He understood he was educated about myth and how to use that to propagate this, these ideas that he had, right? Like storytelling is how you change people's minds. And that's what he was doing through music and through, you know, the universal language, the universal language. So, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg with Sun Ra. That's what we've been steeping ourselves in for these past few weeks and we're going to continue sharing, you know, articles and videos and, you know, some of the things we referenced here in this episode in our Cosmic Tape Music Club group. Please join us there. We're going to put a link in the show notes so that you can join us in the group. We can get to know you. We can hear your stories about Sun Ra and we can uh, get into this, you know, get into the unknown together. If you have an opportunity to check out the remaining members of the orchestra mm-hmm. highly recommend it we actually had the opportunity um when they played the kennedy center with uh, solange in dc it was amazing so definitely yeah. so after his passing which we didn't i you know to me he lives on infinitely so it doesn't really matter to me but he did pass in 1993 i guess i'm in denial of that. yeah whatever he's uh, he's trans molecularizationed into another form at this point but the the orchestra continued to play on 
John Gilmore took over for a little while, and then he passed in 95, and Marshall Allen has been leading the Carrying orchestra the torch. ever since, and he's still still doing it. So, you know, if you get the chance, whenever that is possible again, definitely he's check it out. He's the dude. Marshall Allen's the dude mm-hmm. that everyone will recognize instantly when they yeah. see, and they'll think of, you know, oh yeah, I've seen this guy leading this band before so you know aside from center of course yep so uh we also didn't mention june tyson which i'm really sad i feel like we needed to do like a mini episode after this to talk about all the things we didn't talk about <laughs> but june tyson was the singer she was the only woman who also referred to herself as part of the angel race she was not human she was not woman she was not male she was angel um her voice is from another realm for sure um, so if you hear a woman's voice on the Sun Ra recordings, it is June Tyson, um, who passed in 92, I believe, passed on to another realm and, um, she died before him. Yeah. Oh, wow. Just right around the same time, which is right. really interesting. She was much younger. Um, she's, she did the costumes, you know, she was also a dancer. She was six foot tall. She was just a presence, you know, she, her voice just weaves its way into my brain and just you just can't forget it it, yeah, it changes her you. A- acapella work is just breathtaking like mm-hmm. it's so good her precision her intervals like yeah. i've never heard anyone sing that way and with such confidence start and out in a beautiful place and end in a beautiful mm-hmm, place mm-hmm. like just you don't have to worry about it it doesn't make you nervous yeah <laughs> yeah she carries you to that other realm as well. Sort of like a, yeah, kind of that angel figure. But uh, there's so many more, you know, amazing musicians and artists that were part of the group that we didn't get to touch on. But there's so much more to explore. That's what we're saying. This is kind of the tip of the iceberg. This is an introduction. This is, you know, us getting nerdy about the things, the aspects we're interested in. Uh, but there's just so much. It there's was, so yeah. much to go through. So without further ado, here is our personal music section for this month. First up, we have our friends Travis Thatcher and Dave Gibson. And they are in a project called Personal Bandana. And the release is WF23, This Time It's. And the song is Mind Evaporator.
Next up, we've got our pal Jamal Gray, and his project's name is Aquatic Gardener, and the release is Polymath. The track is Shamanism. for joining us for another episode of the Cosmic Tape Music Club. We're just so glad that we get to do this. It inspires us. We hope it inspires you. And we will see you next time. See you in the group. See you next time. <laughs>